also welcome to stay with you as we turn together to the book of Philippians. Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. I'm going to remind us of where we have been, though, by beginning our reading this morning at verse 2. If you would please give attention to the reading of the Word of God. It is inerrant. It is authoritative in your life and mine. And it is sufficient. Philippians chapter 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this majestic section of your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and for inspiring him. We thank you for converting him by your grace, that we might have this account of his own relationship with Jesus Christ. We ask this morning, Lord, that you would bless us, that you would encourage us, that you would convict us of sin that we might better serve you and love you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was younger, perhaps about 11 or 12, my family decided, after several aborted attempts, to take a vacation in Florida. Three years we had decided to go, weren't able to for two years in a row, and then the third year we went. And so there was great anticipation. And for myself and for my sister, who was younger than me, there was a great deal of new, exciting experiences to be had. Getting on an airplane for the first time. Getting served the little things of peanuts that were your own for the first time. Having your own luggage for the first time. Staying in a hotel in a different state for what seemed to be the first time. And then 
You were at the hotel and you got to swim anytime you wanted because it had a pool. And things just got better. You go to SeaWorld and you see gigantic killer sharks leap and get everybody wet. And you go out and you go out to dinner all the time and you go out to lunch all the time. It was good thing after good thing after good thing. But as a kid, there was still something in the back of your mind. With all of that good stuff, you knew what was coming, right? You knew sometime you were going to get to go to Disney World. You know, the biggest place of fun on earth for a kid. That's what it seems like, at least. You walk in, and everything is gigantic. And that anticipation, even in the midst of everything else that's good, you still keep looking forward to that. That's a bit of what our text is like this morning. You see, the Bible is full of great riches, of wisdom, of comfort, of consolation, of encouragement. And the book of Philippians, we've said before, is full of what we call cross-stitch verses. There are dozens of verses that you could put up in a frame on your wall to be inspired. But this section is, if you'll forgive the analogy, the Disney world of Philippians. This is a passage of Scripture that as a preacher you look at and wonder, if my goal is to preach through the Bible with a congregation, I only get to preach this once? Maybe I'll come back to it in five or ten years. This passage is perhaps one of the clearest, richest expressions of what it means to know and experience both salvation and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's perhaps one of the most personal passages in all of Paul, maybe in all of the Bible. And so I invite you this morning to get ready to see the gates swing open wide, to be ready to dive in with me, to hear and to see what the Lord will show us from this magnificent passage of Scripture. Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11. What we will see in the main are three things. Paul describes us his experience of salvation, and in the main, it is first what he gave up. We'll look at that in verse 8 and a bit in verse 9. Paul describes what he gave up. Then he will describe for us what he has. He says, this is what I gave up, and now this is what I have. And then finally, Paul says, this is what I long for. This is what I look forward to. This is what I am expecting and waiting to experience. So it's a bit of Paul's past, his present, and his future. And the good news for you this morning is that if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is your past, your present, and your future that you can look forward to as well. So let's... Look then, beginning at first, what Paul has given up. Paul says, this is what I gave up. And the first thing that we see is really what Paul has given up is everything. Paul has given up everything. He begins this passage reiterating what he has said in verses 4 through 7. We read that this morning, how he had so many things. He had a lineage that was unparalleled. He had a behavior that was unsurpassed. He had knowledge 
that could not be otherwise attained to. He was circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was as zealous as could be. He was as knowledgeable as could be. He had all of these things. And he begins here in verse 8 with this little word, indeed. Now, this is an opportunity where you need to get a little bit of the flavor of this word. Indeed is an excellent translation because there really is no perfect way to accurately translate the Greek here. It's as if we took five filler words like yes, indeed, but, even so, and stuck them all together at the beginning of a sentence. As a matter of fact, Paul kind of invents a word here by taking three of these little words and even, and so, and mushing them into one word. Now, why does Paul do this? He does this because he wants to get our attention. We might, if we were to paraphrase this indeed, this beginning of this passage, we might say it this way. Let me be even clearer now. He's described for you what he had, and he considered it as loss, and now he says, I've counted that as loss, but let me be even clearer Indeed, I count everything as loss. Now, look here in your scriptures at verse 7. In verse 7, he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Past tense. And now he expands it out and he says, Everything I count. Present tense. What Paul is saying here is, I don't regret my decision one bit. Have you ever had buyer's remorse? You go into a appliance shop and you spend a lot of time thinking and you pick out a refrigerator and right after you've signed on the dotted line and you know it's going to be delivered in a few days, you wonder, I wonder if we should have got the bigger freezer. I wonder if we should have got the stainless instead of the white. You have a, Maybe you have that with a computer or with a car is another good example of that. Paul says, I have absolutely no buyer's remorse here at all. Not only did I count all these things as loss, right now, this very minute as I am speaking to you, I count them as loss. He's saying, in effect, I would do it all over again. Do you get the picture about what Paul thinks of the value of his past life? He says, I'd do it all over again. Now, we need to remember that these things that he counted as loss, these things that he now no longer desires had previous value to him. It's not like he's saying, you know, I count as loss all the weeds that were in my garden. I count as loss all of the annoying pinpricks that I got or all of the lint in my dryer. No, he is saying I count as loss things that I poured my life into. That when I got up in the morning, I made lists about these things. That I checked my lists, that I thought about them, that I wondered how I could execute these things more efficiently, in a more heartfelt fashion, how I could devote myself more to it. This was his life's work. This is as if you decided, midway through your life, after you had built up a business, worked hard, 18-hour days, suffered loss, suffered deprivation, and just finally, as you have this business, you walk away from it and you say, well, you know, it really was worthless to me. This was something that had value 
to Paul. But you see, the reason is, is that Paul looked back at these things and with horror, he realized that everything that he thought had value really was actually destroying him. It would be kind of like this. There was a movement in the 70s and 80s to replace all of sugar with saccharin. You remember that? How saccharin was the miracle sweetener. You were never going to have to worry about gaining weight anymore. You could have diet everything. You just pour enough saccharin in whatever you wanted. And everybody was excited about it. There were products coming out. People were pouring it into their coffee and into their tea, making iced tea with it. They loved it. And then there came out a report that saccharin actually was probably worse for you than sugar. That it caused cancer. Now, I don't want to debate whether lab tests are good or not. I want you to see the point. And the point is, all of a sudden, people who had perhaps given up sugar completely and thought that they were doing the best thing in the world that they could for themselves, downing saccharin packets by the dozens, just realized that they may have actually been harming themselves. That's Paul's view of his past life. And he's very intense about it. Notice the progression of the way Paul talks about what he gave up. In verse 7, he says, I counted these things as loss. He says, I thought about these things. I reckoned them as loss. And then in verse 8, he says, I count everything as loss. Not just whatever things, but everything. And then in verse 8, he says, I have suffered the loss. This is a verb that comes from this same noun loss. Paul's not saying, I thought about it as loss. He says, I actually experienced and suffered the loss. So he's gone from thinking about something as loss, thinking about everything as loss, to now suffering loss. And then the capper is that Paul says, I count all of these things as rubbish. They're not just loss. They're filth. They're horrible. Paul gave up everything. But at the same time, we can say, without contradiction, that what Paul gave up was nothing. He really didn't give up anything of real and lasting worth. He says this when he says that these things were less than lost to him. They were rubbish. Now, this word is a difficult word to translate not because it is hard or obscure, but because it's difficult not to be offensive with this word. This word means rubbish, but it doesn't mean wads of paper that you play basketball with and put in a trash can and you could have to pick out and smooth out and use for something. No, the King James translates this word dung, which is kind of a little old-fashioned for us to think about. If I were amongst farmers or perhaps those who like landscaping, I might use the word manure. But even manure isn't really a proper word because you can think of a good use for manure, can't you? It helps plants to grow. It's something we use as fertilizer. This is something that is worse than that. It's closest to human waste. Or let me see if I can give you a picture of this. Paul is saying that I counted all these things like the stuff that I found in the back of the refrigerator, in the container that I forgot I put there three months ago. You know when you get that, you don't even want to clean that container. 
You open it up and, oh, man, this is horrible. You know, I used to think this chicken was good, but wow, I don't even want to throw this away. Somebody get a separate bag. We're going to throw the Tupperware away too, right? You've done that. Something's fallen in the back of the fridge or you've forgotten about it or maybe even worse, it's fallen in the back of the cabinet. That's what Paul says, my righteousness, my worth, my self-assessment in the law is like. It's like spoiled food. Something I thought was worthwhile, but is now completely worthless. And you see, Paul says, part of the reason this is so worthless is this is what has kept me from Jesus Christ. He said, I knew all about Jesus. He knew more about Christ than almost anyone else in his town. You see, he made it his business to know all about the church and Christians in Christ so he could persecute them better. So that he could push the right buttons. So that he could refute their beliefs. He was not someone who had never heard the name Jesus. He says, this is what kept me from Christ. And I can't help but think that as Paul writes verse 8, in the back of his mind is a verse he's probably memorized. Isaiah 64, 6, in which it is said that all our righteous deeds are as filthy, disgusting rags. That's what Paul is thinking about. There's another thing that's a bit humorous about this. This word here for rubbish can also, some say, take its etymology, that is, its history of the word, from meaning thrown to the dogs. Remember, I told you the dogs weren't pets. They were wild animals. And so if you had something that got caught in the back of your cupboard or fridge and you wanted to get rid of it, in the ancient days you didn't have waste recycling services. You threw it out and you let the dogs eat it. And so what Paul is not so subtly reminding all of these Judaizers, whom he's called dogs, that everything that they are trusting in is rubbish, spoiled food, waste. You see, Paul says the only hope that he has, the only hope that you have, is complete and utter conversion. You cannot reform self-righteousness. You cannot just do these things better. You must be completely converted. If you'll turn with me to the book of Matthew, there's another text that I think Paul has in his mind as he writes this. It's in Matthew chapter 16. Verses 24 to 26, as our Lord reminds his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You might think of another incident that our Lord had when a certain rich young ruler came up and described how he had kept all of the law from his youth. And our Lord said to him, You haven't. Have you thought about the tie that wealth has around your heart? Have you thought about the way you view money and things as opposed to God? And in essence, he said, if you will save your life, you must lose it. You must lose all things, Mr. Ruler. And his answer, sad to say, was a resounding 
No. I won't lose that, God. I'll keep what I have. I have my own righteousness, and I certainly don't need to give it up. He answered, no. He walked away. And it's one of those very intense passages in the Bible where it says that our Lord was sorrowful. You see, if you are not willing to give up all that you think you have attained, everything that you think you can present on a silver platter before God and say, look at this, God, it's the best thing that you could ever want. And when you take that silver lid off and realize it is a pile of steaming filth, if you are not willing to be honest with yourself and know that and give that up, then all there is is loss. But at the same time, if you are willing to give up your own work, willing to give up your own righteousness, the good news of the gospel is that all of the riches of Jesus Christ is yours. You really give up nothing and you really get everything. That's the gospel. You see, all that happens here is a complete conversion. This is, the, this is the inner workings of Paul's mind of the account we see in Acts 9. It's very personal. You'll notice here that Paul doesn't even use the word our like he does throughout Philippians. He doesn't talk about our faith. He doesn't talk about our righteousness. He says mine He doesn't say our Lord Jesus. He says my Lord Jesus. It's very personal. This is what Paul has given up. Well, what did Paul get to give up? What did he have then? We see beginning in verse 9, what he has is Christ's righteousness. Now, what is Christ's righteousness? A righteousness from God, a righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the first thing that we have to understand is that this righteousness is not a self-righteousness. What do we mean by that? Well, Paul says, it is not a righteousness of my own. It is not my own righteousness. Now, I want us to think about this in two ways. The first thing that we often think about with our own righteous or our self-righteousness is something we do by ourselves. And so we are tempted at times to think, well, I can't have just my own righteousness. Maybe I need a little bit of God, too. It's kind of like, you know, two parts oil, two parts vinegar, and I'll make a salad dressing. I'll bring some Christ righteousness in. I'll do what I can do. I'll do my part. God will do his part. Things will work out okay. You see, that's not what Paul means here when he says, my righteousness. Paul means more than that. It's not just a righteousness that he performs. It is a righteousness that is self-conferred. It's a righteousness that he says, you know, I'm pretty righteous. You've seen this before, right, in other contexts. Perhaps you have gone outside with your children, your boys, or friends or neighbors. You throw the ball and they tell you, with a very serious look in their eye. You know, I think I could be the best pitcher ever. I think I am the best pitcher. Did you see my curveball? And you think to yourself, well, it's all well and good for you to say you're the best pitcher ever, but that doesn't really bear any relationship to reality. And, and it's also not an objective judgment. It's, it's pretty subjective. It's kind of like having a self-conferred college degree. Now, how many of you would go to a doctor who had on his wall 
If I were a doctor, degree of medicine from the school of Fred. And you say, well, where did you go to school? He said, well, I really didn't. Well, what did you learn? Well, I just kind of poked around a little bit. I went to a Holiday Inn Express and got smarter. Well, who gave you the right to say you were a doctor? Well, nobody. I just thought, you know, I like to be a doctor, so I call myself a doctor, right? We've seen some of that lately, haven't we, in the news, calling ourselves doctors. And so this is a self-conferred degree. It's like a self-published book. It's like citing as an authority to your argument a book. And when someone says, well, who wrote that book? You say, well, I did. Okay, who edited the book? Well, I did. Okay, who published the book? Well, I did. You know, you can do that on the Internet today. All right, that's very valuable. That's a very good help to your argument. This is a self-conferred kind of righteousness. And Paul says in another place, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes really only knowledge of sin. He says that in Romans 3, verse 20. Paul says that this kind of righteousness, this self-conferred, self-bought, self-made righteousness is everything that I could have conceived that I had done. And I cannot be right with God because of it. The question then comes to you. What is your concept of righteousness? Why do you think God should love you? Is it because of your dedication? Is it because of your knowledge of the Scriptures? Is it because of your family? Is it because of your job? Is it because of your abilities? Why should God love you? Why should God look down on you and call you His child? You know, this isn't just for adults. It's too. Is your righteousness the fact that your dad's an elder? Or your mother teaches Sunday school? Or your parents and grandparents have been members of a church? You see, anything that we place in front of God that comes from us, comes out of us, Paul says, is self-righteousness. And instead, what we need, he says, is another's righteousness. We don't need a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but we need that that comes through faith in Christ. A righteousness that comes by a hand reaching that from another. You see, righteousness is a property. It is an invisible property, but it is something that we must possess. The Bible talks about it in terms of imagery of clothing. Righteousness is like clean white robes that we are dressed in. And faith, Paul says, is the hand, the empty hand that reaches out to get the white robes. By faith, we receive a righteousness that is not our own. And we know that because Paul says we receive this not only through faith, but we receive it from God. You see, God is the source of real righteousness. God is the source of the righteousness that makes us right in His sight. One commentator puts it this way, at the risk of being blasphemous. Even if Christ were to die a thousand deaths, 
that would not be enough if it were not sufficient in God's sight. You see, the work must be sufficient in God's sight to satisfy Him. God must be satisfied. Now, the wonder and the grace of the gospel is that Christ's work, His life and death, is sufficient. Nothing else is. You cannot come to God with anything else to satisfy Him. It is only on the basis of the righteousness that comes from God that we can satisfy God. And this makes sense, doesn't it? If God has given this righteousness, we know it is enough. We don't have to worry about leaving one thing undone. We don't have to worry about whether it meets the match. No. It comes from God. And it is something that depends on faith. It is not just something we get from faith. It is something that depends upon faith. You see, we cannot receive this righteousness unless we are willing to trust God and the Lord Jesus Christ with our very eternal soul. You see, this kind of righteousness is something that we can possess. But we must trust God that it is sufficient. And there are times, if we're honest with ourselves, in the dark night of our soul, when the enemy attacks and we wonder, is it really enough? I mean, just saying I believe in Jesus? Is that really enough? Does it really assure me that I'll have eternal life? Does it really assure me that I won't be under God's wrath? You see, Paul knows that those kind of attacks come. It's not the coming of the attacks that tells you you are not a child of God. It's the believing in those attacks and failing to trust in God. Those attacks come upon, as a matter of fact, they are harshest upon the children of God. That's whom Satan desires to attack. But your answer to those attacks of the evil one is to say that my righteousness is not my own. It comes from God. It is the work of Jesus Christ that I receive from Him, and I put all of my chips on that. I am all in. On Jesus. I don't hold anything else back. I don't have a plan B. Jesus is everything. He's all I have. And you see, this righteousness, while it is a quality, while it is a, an attribute, it is something that we may possess, it is not something that we possess in a vacuum. Because you see, Paul says that I have suffered the loss of all these things, including my own righteousness, that I might have what comes from God, that I might know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He says, I count everything as loss in order to know Christ. Now, we've already said Paul knew about Christ even before faith. But now... Paul is saying, I know Christ in a deep, personal, experimental way. This kind of knowledge is the kind of knowledge that the Lord speaks of in Amos 3 when he says, I know Israel. It doesn't mean that God has somehow forgotten about the Moabites. Or on his list of peoples, he hasn't put the Edomites. No, it means, I know Israel. Deeply. 
personally. I have a relationship with Israel. The Bible is very emphatic about this. It is not a euphemism in Genesis when it is said that Adam knew his wife and she conceived. The Bible is not trying to avoid certain words. The Bible is trying to explain to you that Adam knew his wife. That he loved her so deeply, knew everything about her, was in relationship with her and expressed that in a physical way, but it was an expression of the relationship between Adam and Eve. And Paul says, that is the kind of relationship that I have with Jesus Christ. That's the gain, Paul says. The gain is that I know Him, that I am in relationship with Him. I have His righteousness. But I have more than that, he says. I have His power as well. He says, I would like to know His power, the power of His resurrection. Now, this kind of power is of several sorts. It is protecting power. You see, Paul is found in Christ. But there's a sense in which he is also hidden in Christ. He says that in Colossians 3, that my life is hidden in Christ. And you see, this is the true gain, to have Christ. That's the kind of power that protects. That's really what Christianity means. It means to have Christ. It doesn't mean just to have eternal life. It doesn't mean just to have a ticket out of hell. It means to have Christ. And this kind of power is resurrection power. Now, do you see something curious about this text? That Paul starts and he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings and his death. Does that seem a little bit of an odd sequence to you? Don't usually you go suffering, death, resurrection? That's at least how it would appear to me. Why does Paul change these around? It's because Paul is pointing to this resurrection power as the power that we have now to make it through life. The power that we have now to face death. You see, now we know we can make it to the other side because we see Jesus having gone before us. We need not fear suffering because we know Jesus has passed through and is glorified and has prepared a place for us. We need not fear death because Jesus has broken the veil of death. He has conquered death. And He stands on the other side and says, My child, I desire to be with you forever. This is power, not just to think about things. This is power for life, real power for living. It is sanctifying power. You see, there's no real power in the law. Have you ever used this phrase, well, I can't do anything more than my best? You ever said that? All I can do is my best. Whether it's playing cards or... Uh, working around the house or something at the office. And we say, I can't do anything more than my best. And usually when we say that, we're really aware that what we have done is not our best. We have, we've missed something in the translation. We've left something undone. We really haven't done our best, but we want to use that as an excuse. But you see, Paul says there's real power. We don't have to worry about doing our best. Because being with God gives us power. 
following the Lord Jesus Christ gives real resurrection, sanctifying power to build up our relationships. To conquer sin. To walk, as Paul says, in newness of life with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have real power from Christ. We've experienced Christ's righteousness, His power, but we also experience His sufferings. Now, what does that mean? It means to know Jesus Christ is to experience both His resurrection and His sufferings. You see, it's really explanatory. It's not an addition. It is explanatory. I want to know Him, and to know Him, I must share His sufferings. That means two things. It means that when you go through sufferings, Christ is there with you. You don't have to guess about it. You don't have to wonder about it. Christ is there with you in your sufferings. It also means that in the midst of your trials and sufferings, that is where communion with Christ is found. What a blessing, Paul says. This is what I have now. I know Jesus. I know His righteousness. I know His power. And I have the blessing of knowing His sufferings. Kind of an odd guy, this Paul, isn't he? Well, Paul says, this is what I've given up. It's been everything, but it really is nothing. And these are the things that I possess now. But let me tell you quickly, he says, what I long for. This is what I look forward to experiencing fully in its fullness. This is what he says here in verse 10 that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He says, what I long for first is to be like Christ. He says, I long to be like Him. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because if we are satisfied in Christ if we rest in Christ for all that we have, then surely that's something that we want to emulate. Surely that's someone we want to be like. We want to be conformed to His image. We want to be like Him. And the word that Paul uses here is unusual. It actually has the connotation of taking on the same form. You remember when we talked about form in chapter 2? How Jesus took on the form of a servant? How He was in the form of God? How there is a deep underlying reality to this? Paul says, I want to be the same form as Jesus. Now, this word isn't used anywhere else in the Bible, but it has an adjective to it that you know and perhaps know well. In Romans 8, 29, when it says that we will be conformed to the image of His Son. We will be made like Jesus. You see, that's the end of sanctification. That's the end of this resurrection power, is that at the end of the day, as it were, at the end of the day of the Lord, in glory, we will be like Jesus. We won't be hesitant. We won't be selfish. We will be like Jesus. And this kind of 
being like Jesus, this kind of knowing Christ, works itself out in our lives today practically, in our daily conduct. It is something we experience now and desire to see fulfilled later. And that's why we must know Jesus not only in His power, but also in His suffering. We must be like Him in His suffering. Because Christ-likeness leads to Calvary. Let me disabuse you of a notion you may see as you flip through the cable stations and find a cable preacher. That the life of a Christian is not about having the perfect car in the perfect house with more money than you could ever spend and you never get a cold. That is not the Christian life. And you are not living a sub-Christian life if you have illness or sickness or money trouble. You see, being like Christ is like being like Christ in all of His fashions, including His sufferings. And this is very contrary to modern American thought, if we think about it. I watched uh, a film, some of you may have seen it on YouTube. It was a film of a Chinese woman who was a Christian who was dragged out of her apartment in the middle of the night in her pajamas and tortured for weeks and then imprisoned for six years before she was free. And if we think about that, and we think of the horror that's involved with that, and then we talk to her afterwards and hear her joy at being able to hold on to Christ, then thinking about the fact that maybe we didn't get invited to that cocktail party because our cubicle mate saw a Bible sitting on our desk, isn't quite exactly the sufferings of Christ. That we didn't get to go to that school dance because somebody knows we worked at VBS isn't quite the sufferings of Christ. And we think about how blessed we are and how God goes with us and how He deals with us even with those shallow sufferings. How He's with us in the deep sufferings, making us more and more like Himself, fashioning us in His image. Finally, Paul says, I not only long to look like Christ, but I long to follow Christ. He says, I don't only want to walk with Him, I want to walk where He is going. I want to know where He's going, and I want to be on a journey there too. That's why he uses this word, I may attain the resurrection. It's kind of an odd word, isn't it? It means arrive at, come to. Make the end of one's journey. Now, if we look about this, we may think that it's kind of odd. Paul saying, if I, by any means possible, might attain to the resurrection, we say, Paul, wait a minute, hold, hold on a second here. You looked so confident a couple of verses ago. Now you're wondering about your resurrection? No. Paul's remembering his past. He's remembering that he can't place any reliance in anything of himself. That he is wholly at the mercy of King Jesus. And he doesn't know how the Lord is going to bring it about. It may be execution in Rome. It may be long life at Philippi. He has no idea how he will attain the resurrection. But the one thing that he knows is that Jesus will get him there. 
He is trusting in Jesus to take him to the resurrection from the dead. Are you trusting in him today for that? It doesn't matter whether you're 82 or 22. You must be trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ to take you to the end of the journey, to take you to the celestial city, to take you to the mansion He has prepared for you. This is the glory of God's salvation. How we are right with God. How He makes us like Christ. And how He brings it to fruition that we would be with Christ forever.